Thank you. What a treat it is to be able to hear such fine pianists in our church. Thank you. Simply two grand or all four of you. Simply four grand? (laughs) We're going to continue in the book of Matthew right after the Beatitudes. If you want to open up your pew Bibles and to page 958, we're going to start at verse 13 and carry forward where Jesus talks about being salt and light onto the earth. And uh, I invite you also to look over head to the screens if you wish. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise today for making it possible for us to be salt to the earth and light to the world. We give you thanks this day for providing this country in which we live so that we might gather here on this day and worship you in freedom without fear of persecution or prosecution and that we might hear from you today now how we might better know and serve you. And for that, we'll give you all the thanks and the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. In two days, our country will be celebrating the 230th anniversary of its independence. Our country's origin and the beginnings of our American culture can be traced all the way back to 1607 with the first successful English settlement at Jamestown, Virginia. Shortly thereafter, the pilgrims arrived on the Mayflower in 1620 at Plymouth, Massachusetts. The pilgrims were fleeing religious persecution and they sought to live and worship God in freedom. And so they came. From America's earliest times, the centrality of God and religion have been unmistakable. The then revolutionary idea of equal treatment for all under the law, which is found in the Mayflower Compact, came right out of the pages of Scripture. The early Americans called upon God openly and unashamedly. In fact, we have a national holiday whose origins did not include the watching of football games on TV. It's called Thanksgiving, and it was originally observed as a time to give thanks to God for his provision through difficult times. In the Continental Congress, none other than Benjamin Franklin suggested that the Congress call upon God's assistance in the writing of the Declaration of Independence. In one speech... Uh, In one speech, uh, he reminded the Founding Fathers, I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convinced I am of this truth, that God governs the affairs of men. G.K. Chesterton once observed that America is the only nation in the world that is founded on a creed. And that creed is set forth with dogmatic and even theological lucidity in the Declaration of Independence. G.K. Chesterton was not an American. He is from England. 
There was a time indeed when America was considered to be a Christian nation and its people were the salt of the earth. They were light onto the world. And there was a clear distinction between an American Christian and the American non-Christian. But today things have changed. In a highly publicized case not too long ago, a judge was forced to remove a monument to the Ten Commandments from a public building. In many communities across America, nativity scenes are forbidden to be publicly displayed even at Christmas time. In many schools, Christmas songs with religious overtones are not permitted in children's concerts. What was once a moment of silent prayer is no longer a part of the day in many schools across this country. The Pledge of Allegiance is rapidly disappearing, and there is an ongoing effort to have the words, In God We Trust, removed from our currency. In light of that, America is no longer considered to be a Christian nation. We are, for all practical purposes, living in a post-Christian America. And if there was ever a time for Christians to be salt to the earth and a light onto the world... It's now. To be salt of the earth and light out of the world means that there is something intrinsically significant that is observable in the life of the believer. It means that the word of God is so very present in the heart, mind, and soul of the believer that it is observable outwardly to those that do not believe, to to, to witness and to evaluate. One commentator suggests that at one time rabbis used salt as a symbol for wisdom so that losing its saltiness would signify becoming foolish. In fact, one of the meanings of the Greek word for tastelessness is literally to become foolish. The imagery of being a light unto the world symbolizes how the believer glorifies God in the way that he or she lives. Well, what does all of that mean? What all of that means is that there ought to be a noticeable outward difference between an American Christian and an American non-Christian. So how do you think we've been doing? What is our country's current state in light of that? George Barna is a Christian researcher who's kept track of American trends for the last several years. And here's just a sample of what he's found concerning Christians, their beliefs, attitudes, and approach to religion and life. In one survey, 33% of people who call themselves Christians believe that abortion is morally acceptable. 19% of Christians believe that viewing pornography is just a matter of personal taste. The divorce rate among Christians is now nearly identical to that of non-Christians, with one survey showing evangelical Christians having an even higher rate of divorce than others. Being born again, born again Christians are just as likely as non-Christians to purchase a lottery ticket. And approximately 36% of all Christians read their horoscope in the newspaper. Personally, I've always found reading the Bible to tell me what I need to know about what God has planned for me. 35% of Christians say that to get by in life these days, sometimes you have to bend the rules for your own benefit. And most shocking of all, 50% of Christians believe that there's no such thing as absolute truth. Friends, this is absolutely appalling. And it's disturbing and it's shocking considering where our nation originated. And there's still more. According to Barna, the idea that Satan is a real being capable of influencing human lives is considered to be hogwash 
by most Americans as well it is by most mainline Christian denominations. Additionally, less than a half of all adults, only 40% believe that Jesus Christ lived a sinless life during his three decades on, on, this, on this earth. With statistics like this, just what is the difference today between an American Christian and an American non-Christian? What's the difference? Before we look at a couple of examples, I want to be very clear that there is a difference. When a person accepts Jesus as his or her personal Savior, there's an immediate internal change that takes place that separates the new believer from the unbeliever. And it's a change that results in the new believer spending an eternity with Jesus as opposed to those who will spend an eternity apart from Jesus. There is a difference. But in the context of our passage today, in Matthew 5, what we're concerned about today is how the faith of the believer manifests itself openly in a way that's visible and observable by the non-Christian. If we're going to be salt to the earth and light onto the world, there surely should be an outward difference which makes the Christian distinct among the people. Unfortunately, the statistics are telling us that there really might not be much difference between the way an American Christian approaches life and the way that an American non-Christian approaches life. Even if we say something like, well, as Christians, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, guess what? Other people can also say the same thing. Some Muslims believe that Jesus is God's Son. They also believe that Muhammad is God's Son. In Scripture, even the demons believe that Jesus is God's Son. In Luke 4.41, moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, you are the Son of God. But Jesus rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. So our declarations of Jesus by themselves don't necessarily distinguish us as American Christians. Well, what if we, what if we do good deeds? Jesus says in Matthew 7:22, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you Evil doers. Imagine that. Evil doers doing good deeds. Well, if that doesn't serve to distinguish us as American Christians from American non-Christians, how about if we say that as Christians, we have love for one another? There's an old song that goes, and they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love. In fact, Jesus commanded his disciples to love one another. He says, by this all people know that you're my disciples. At the same time, he also reminds us in Matthew 7:11, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will, will your Father in heaven give good, good gifts to those who ask him? And also Luke 6:32, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. Well, it seems we haven't exactly cornered the market on love either. What's the difference? I'd like to be able to say that the difference between American Christians and American non-Christians is that, well, on Sunday, Christians go to church. The problem is that not every Christian goes to church on Sunday morning. In fact, some Christians never go to church. And still more so, some Christians are content to go to an ABF or a Sunday school class, but they won't attend a worship service. So again, what's the difference? 
What is it that distinguishes us as American Christians? There's certainly more examples that we could take a look at, but I, I think you get the basic idea that when it comes to outward appearances, the way by people judge us, our character, what we believe, who we are inside, if we're going to be salt and light in an observable way, a way that manifests our inner faith outwardly in visible ways, the challenge is in being able to show what's the difference. What's the difference in you? What is that difference? Even if we talk about things like peace of mind and strength of family, I can point to many Christians who are struggling with the cares of this world, problems at work, problems at home, problem with the kids, problem in marriages, problems with personal self-esteem, and the list goes on and on and on and on. In those circumstances, how can other people tell if you're a Christian? How will they know? Well, we're going to take a look at a passage in Scripture that illustrates, to some degree, this challenge. We're going to look at what did Jesus do that was different because the things he did was different from anything that anyone else was doing. So right now, turn to Matthew chapter 11, just a few pages forward. We're going to look at verses 2 through 5. And we're going to take a look at John the Baptist's inquiry for an outward sign. Let's just take a quick look at the first two verses. Matthew 11, starting verse 2. When John heard in prison that Christ, what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Well, in one sense, this is a rather provocative question, at least I think it is, and it may even be an impertinent question. The passage indicates John's in prison, so all of his information is being brought to him from the outside. We're told that he's heard what Jesus was doing, at least what it is that's been reported to him. And whatever it is that was reported to him apparently didn't indicate much of a difference in Jesus' behavior from others. Hence the question, are you the one? Now, personally, I'm a little bit more intrigued with the little stinger that comes at the end of the question. The words, or should we expect somebody else? Uh, there's, a, there's probably a, a number of different ways and possibilities as to what was meant by that, uh, that statement. But when I, when I read that, I'm, I'm reminded about how my mother used to check up on me when she asked me to do something around the house. She had this particular sentence that, that she'd spring on me. Even though I knew the question was coming, she would always ask it when I had no idea. I, I had no idea that I'd gotten caught. And it usually went something like this. John, did you put away your toys like I told you to? Suddenly I feel like, feel like cleaning up my office right now for some reason. That still sends chills down my spine. Uh, it seems that whenever we add that kind of a little sting at the end of a question, what's intended is to provoke an action. And it's possible that this might have been what is on the disciples' mind as they're trying to inquire, Jesus, what are you doing? Are you the expected one? What are, are you the intended one? Now, Jesus is going to answer them, and he's not going to answer it with a yes-no question. He's going to answer them by telling them what's he been doing. But before we look at that, we have to interject something here, and it's very important. So just for right now, keep in mind, we're going to come right back to this passage just a little bit. All along, I've been asking about the difference between an American Christian and an American non-Christian. And of course, at the very heart of the difference is this. It's that we, as believers in Christ, are proclaimers to be followers of Jesus. Jesus is our leader. What makes us different 
is the one whom we follow, who is different from all others. And so we follow him. Well, exactly what does that mean? What does it mean to be a follower? Well, the dictionary definition of follower is this from Webster's. It's one in service of another, or one that follows the opinions or teaching of another, or one that imitates another. So we have aspects of serving, aspects of imitation. Scripturally, we find an example of this in John 12, 26, where Jesus says, If anyone will serve me, let him follow me. Now, the Greek word for follow here is akolathaito. Its grammatical form is called the present active imperative, and it indicates a command for a continuous action that continues on and on. It's not a singular action in time. It's not a temporary action. It's not like uh, when the crowds started to follow Jesus and later uh, fell away from him. Or to use a modern example, it's not like when I used to follow the Minnesota North Stars but now I no longer follow them. It's not that kind of action. What's being called for here is a lifetime of discipleship, following after Jesus Christ. It means to trust him, to follow his teaching, and to act according to his example or to imitate him. This means that to follow Jesus, we should be doing the things that Jesus was doing while he was alive here on earth. Well, what things were those? What was he doing? This is what Jesus is going to report back to John the Baptist as we now rejoin Matthew 11. We'll pick it up in verse 4. Matthew 11:4. Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. That's an amazing list for the short number of years that Jesus had public ministry. And if we take a closer look at that list, we can probably break it down to just three major things that Jesus was doing. He raised the dead, he healed the sick, and the good news was preached to the poor. He shared the gospel. Now when I take a look at that list, I have to confess to you that there are some of those things on that list that I'm not capable of of doing, uh, especially when it comes to raising the dead. Now, there are things that were promised in Christ, having access to power of the Holy Spirit, uh, being able to go directly to the Father without, without having to go through uh, an, an interceder. However, in and of and by myself, under my own power, apart from God, apart from Jesus, apart from the Holy Spirit, apart from all of that I don't have the power within myself to go to my sister's grave in Wadena, Minnesota and call out to her, Kathleen, come out. I don't have that power. And my guess is most of us here probably don't either. Likewise, I don't have an ability to, uh, in the same way, heal somebody. Now, we have a very powerful tool that we can use in the, in the Holy Spirit. We can pray for the healing of, of a person. In fact, we have the choir during the church here pray regularly for those that are sick. And we've seen some miraculous things that the Lord was doing through prayer. In fact, there's a formula for healing found in James 5:14 and 15. It says, is anyone of you sick? You should call the elders of the church to pray over him. Anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer 
uh, offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. And if he sinned, he will be forgiven. Now we have access to that. But I, on my own, apart from God, apart from Jesus, apart from the Holy Spirit, in and of myself, I don't have that supernatural power. I have access to that power, to Jesus. But I don't possess it on my own, apart from him. And even our own wondrous and wonderful medical community that seemingly perform miracles on the human body are limited in their ability to bring healing. We still have the scourge of AIDS, of cancer, Alzheimer's, multiple sclerosis, and even the common cold. When it comes to raising the dead and healing the sick, it's very difficult indeed to demonstrate outwardly that we're following Jesus according to his example. So what are we going to do? Isn't it wonderful that there's this third thing he did? He shared the gospel. And I get excited about that. Not everybody might get excited about that, but I find it very gratifying to think there's actually something that I can do here today that Jesus was doing when he was alive on this earth, walking the earth, breathing the air, talking to people, sharing life, bringing the kingdom to those in darkness. And guess what? All of you can do that as well. Every single one of us. We can all share the gospel. In fact, sharing the gospel is part and parcel of the purpose of this very church. And what is that? To do what? To reach seekers and equip followers to be influencers for Jesus. Folks, that, my friends, is a difference between an American Christian In an American non-Christian, we are able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the entire world. It's a way that each and every one of us can take part in fulfilling the Great Commission in our own lives. To make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Teaching them all that Jesus has commanded. And there's a number of ways that we can all do this. There's a number of ways that we can partake in the fulfilling of the Great Commission in our lives. First of all, we can share. Well, what is sharing? You can share your personal testimony. What has God done in your life? If you're a believer, you have a story to tell. How has God touched you? You can share the story with your friends, with your neighbors, with your relatives, with your co-workers. You can go on short-term missions trips, or you can become full-time missionaries. We've been sending out teams left and right all summer long, and there's going to be more people that we're going to be commissioning. Praise the Lord, we have a church that sends people out into the field to win people to Christ, bringing the gospel to a lost world. Praise God for that. We can choose to mentor somebody to be Christ incarnate to them or simply lending a helping hand or just even invite somebody to come to church. We all know people that have never been in this room. Invite them. Take a chance. Wait till we have an event where you can invite somebody where they'll they'll hear a gospel message preached to them. There'll be an invitation. We can all participate in the Great Commission. Perhaps the Holy Spirit right now might even be speaking to some of you along these lines, maybe. And maybe you don't know how you should proceed. It can be a scary thing. A couple of ideas. You could talk to Mike Brinkman when he comes back from a sabbatical. He can help you find out what your spiritual gifts are. How has God gifted you? What are you good at? Or you can talk to Carol Miller about the possibility of going on a mission trip. He would love to talk to you about going on a missions trip. Or if you're unsure about how to share your personal testimony, our staff could help by starting up. We could start up in nothing flat. 
a class that would teach you how to become a contagious Christian, just call the office. Let us know. We'll find a way to help you. It's one of the differences between who we are and who everyone else is. Another way that we can participate in the sharing of the gospel is to pray. Now, there's a very key thing for our church. What are our three values? Prayer, evangelism, and discipleship. Prayer. Everyone in this room can pray. We're entering into a time of transition in our church where we need to be on our knees as a church and we need to ask God to help and guide us forward into the future. We on staff need your prayers. We need you. Please pray for our staff. Pray for our ministries. Pray for the lost. Pray for those who will bring the gospel to them in your stead. Pray for Pastor George as he goes out into the world to proclaim the message of the gospel as he represents the national preachers. And folks, please pray for our elders. They need you. They have a huge responsibility and burden at this time. They need your prayers. Pray for our elders. Pray that God will guide them, that he'll protect them from the enemy. Pray that God will bring his next chosen one to come here and lead this church forward. Pray for a supernatural infilling of the Holy Spirit that will bring revival to our church and to everyone who enters into this. We can all pray and take part in the Great Commission, the sharing and spreading of the gospel. If you find praying to be difficult and if you're not quite sure how to go about it, I have an idea for you. Give Beth Moorhead a call. Every week she has a prayer meeting in this very church. She would love to have you come and join her. Give her a call. Tell her that you're available. She would love to pray with you. And, and, and all of you together discovering what God can do and what he ultimately will do in our midst. We can all pray. Another way to participate in sharing of the gospel is to give. We have many ministries in this church that need financial support, especially now in this time of transition. We might not have a senior pastor for the present, but the ministries of the church and the message of the gospel still goes forward. And we need your help. We need your support. So give. Give to our missionaries. Give to support our short-term missions. Give to support our children's ministries. They're always in need of new tools and equipment. Give for the improvement of our facility so that we can better be able to welcome seekers in a friendly and inviting environment. We need your help. Giving is one of the easiest ways to let your light shine before men that they're able to see your good works, to give back a portion of what God has first given you. Malachi 3.10 says, Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing, you'll not have enough room for it. If there's ever been a time to give, it's now. And still there's another way that you can participate in the sharing of the gospel. And that is to support or serve. Henry Blackaby says that if you want to be serving God, then you need to be where he's working and then join in. In a few weeks, we're going to have an annual meeting where you're going to have the opportunity to read the reports of the staff of all the things that God did this past year. And I think what you're going to find 
is that you don't have to go looking for where God is working because he's working right here at YZ Evangelical Free Church. And there are plenty of ways that we can take part by serving. A couple of ideas for you. Our ABFs and our small groups always need to have a helping hand for weekly setup and planning. Give Carol Miller a call. Ask him how you can help out. Mike Brinkman, Kevin Campbell, our youth pastors, they're always looking for chaperones for youth activities. Let them know you're available. In the worship ministries, there's always a need for people with musical skill. If you've been in the choir before, but you've stayed away, now's the time to come back and serve this fall. If you're a credentialed counselor, you should contact Beth Norhead. Right now, her, her load has increased greatly due to the transition. Set up an appointment. Let her know you can help. And if you're passionate for young adults, Randy Strode is looking for passionate leaders to move this vital ministry forward. Tell him you're what he's been looking for. And finally, there's no other ministry in this church as vital as our children's ministry. Because this is where you find the future of the church. And Dorothy, Hanson, and Bethany need your help. Now's the time to let them know you're able to serve. You can do this. Spreading the gospel by sharing, by praying, giving, supporting. When you support the ministries of this church... You are supporting a part of the body of Christ that is dedicated to the proclamation of the gospel, both here and abroad, dedicated to reaching seekers and equipped followers to be influencers for Jesus. Dedicated to the extent that through the proclamation of the gospel, a stranger can walk into this place, be one to Christ, pass from death and eternal life to walk away from sin, and then become an influencer for Jesus, and walk out of here proclaiming God is really among you. God is here. But you are needed. As we close today, I'm going to give you an opportunity. Maybe you've felt in the past, that it's somebody else's place to share. Somebody else's place to pray. Somebody else's place to give or to serve. Somebody else will do those things. The pastors will do those things. But today, if in your heart of hearts, if your spirit, you sense being called to a higher purpose, to distinguish yourself among the peoples. I'm going to give you an opportunity to say to the Lord, Lord, here am I. Send me. We're going to go to the Lord and pray, and I'm going to give you this opportunity at the prompting of the Spirit to commit yourself to doing and serving in one of those areas. And then I'm going to pray for you that the Lord will help you and guide you and lead you, that we will expand the kingdom on earth under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Let's go to the Lord and pray. Please bow your heads. If the Lord's prompting you to take part in the Great Commission in ways that you might not have known or thought of in the past, then this is a moment that's between you and the Lord. Maybe for some of you, He's calling to share your personal testimony. 
Maybe he's calling you to a short-term mission. Maybe he just wants you to be an inviter of a particular person who's coming to your mind now to bring them to this church. Maybe he's calling you to deeper prayer. Maybe you need to commit to praying regularly for some of these things that we've talked about today. Maybe he's giving you an opportunity to take part in the sharing of the gospel through greater financial giving. Maybe he's calling you to serve this body in ways that you've never, ever dreamed of before. If today you're willing to commit yourself to what the Lord is laying on your heart right now, concerning any or all of these things, with our hands still bowed and our eyes still closed, I'd like to pray for you. If you're committing yourself today, would you please just raise your hand right now where you're seated with nobody looking. Raise your hand that, that you would commit to doing some of these things for the church, to become involved. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yes, thank you more. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Bless you more. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Any more that want to commit today? Thank you. Thank you. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for speaking to the hearts of these people today. I lift them up to you, these who are saying yes to you, to the things that you've laid on their hearts. Heavenly Father, we know you work your will through the hearts and lives of those who call your own. I ask that you bless them, that you guide them, that you lead them, help them to follow through with their commitments, help them to be more effective in sharing the gospel, to be deeper in their prayer life, to be more generous in their giving, to be even more dedicated in their support of this body, and that through them and others, you will continue growing and expanding your kingdom here on earth as you continue to grow them in their faith. And Father, for those who are not yet ready, not yet ready to make this kind of a commitment, I pray that you'll continue to lead them and guide them, be with them, and to do so in powerful ways, in such a way that when the day comes that they're able to say to you, Lord, here am I, send me. They'll know that it's from you. Thank you for this day, Lord. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for this dear country that you've given us to live in. Lord, may you reign in our lives today. May you reign in our lives tomorrow and the day thereafter and the day thereafter so that in everything that we say and do in our hearts and our minds and in our lives, it will serve to bring you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.